Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. With a growing number of people on prescribed medication, there is an alternative that could help you on your road to better health. Food is medicine. And we'll talk with an organization that prepares and delivers medically tailored meals for people with chronic conditions like cancer and heart disease who have diet restrictions, all to better their health free of charge. My kidneys are stage five, so okay. they're done. Right. Still got to eat. On dialysis days, I don't feel like cooking. So it's so much easier just to get that meal. Shara Day Howard closes out the 50th anniversary of hip hop, wrapping up celebrations held around the world. They created new scratches like the Pee Wee Herman scratch, the Transformer scratch, all these different scratches and beats that we still use in here today. That's all coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. We've heard the term eat to live, and just about every doctor I speak with about various ailments talks about the importance of nutrition. In fact, many doctors will advise patients on how they should eat given their condition and may even refer their patients to nutritionists. Everyday patients with chronic conditions like cancer, heart disease, and more are being prescribed medically tailored meals as part of their treatment plans. MANA is an organization serving the greater Philadelphia area that brings together dietitians, chefs, drivers, volunteers, all to cook and deliver nutritious, medically appropriate meals, and also provide nutrition counseling to those battling serious illnesses. Joining us today is Sue Doherty. She is CEO of MANA. Along with Sue is Dr. Kristen Rising. She's professor of emergency medicine and director of the Center for Connected Care at Thomas Jefferson University. And also Kevin Kilmartin, who is a client of MANA, joins us today. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks so much. Well, let's talk about this movement, the food is medicine movement. Are we seeing an increase in this right now? So absolutely. So MANA, we've been doing this work for 34 years, and we are so excited that so many folks now are recognizing the impact and the importance of food as medicine. People get prescribed diets all the time, and there's no way to access them. Mm. You get prescribed a medication, you go to the pharmacy. What happens when you get prescribed a 4-gram potassium, 2-gram sodium, 2-gram phosphorus diet, right? It's really, really complicated. Dr. Rising, maybe you can talk a little bit about um, the fact that, you know, just about every ailment, uh, doctors bring up diet and uh, exercise and nutrition, um, but a lot of us leave the doctor's office and we, I don't know, eat healthy, quote unquote, for about a week. And then we slip right back into our old habits. How important is nutrition education for all patients? I think nutrition education is a really fundamental part of caring for chronic diseases. And I think um, there are many reasons that people struggle with their nutrition. And some are that it's hard to follow the education you receive, but others are that there's a lot of other barriers in the system to getting access to the foods you need, to getting access to enough nutrition. 
Um, my focus in the food as medicine space started about 10 years ago when we did a study with about 150 patients with diabetes and asked them, what are your primary goals for your diabetes that aren't being met? And we heard over and over, I need better access to healthy food and I need a better understanding of what healthy is. Yeah. Right. I think um, providers are pretty good at identifying what's not healthy. Don't eat refined carbs. Don't eat that pasta. Stop with the canned soup. And yet, on a whole, patients are lacking enough information about what really is healthy and how to do it in their lives. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned um, the fact that people don't know where to get it. You know, eating healthy, of course, is expensive for everyone. Um, so therein lies that issue, also the issues of the social determinants of health and the disparities that exist. A lot of people live in food deserts and don't have access to these healthy foods. And this is where MANA comes in, yes? Yes, so absolutely. So the clients that we're serving, and we're serving about 1,600 households right now, we show up and we deliver the food directly to their homes. So complete nutrition, three meals a day, seven days a week. We have an army of volunteers that help to support our efforts, but we really bring the service to the clients. And the reality is that clients that we are serving, they lack access, right? 97% are low income and often they're, they're alone. And sometimes our drivers are the only knock that they have on their door. Mm. Kevin, how did you come in contact with MANA? Well, seven years ago, I had a stroke, okay. a very debilitating stroke. Mm. And I couldn't cook for myself. And my daughter signed me up for MANA through my doctor. And it was actually a godsend because some days I didn't feel like moving. You know, it was a struggle to walk, Yeah, use my hands. So just having a prepared meal I could eat up and eat mm -hmm. was a godsend. Okay. It really was. Can you talk a little bit, Sue, about how that works? Does MANA work with the patient's doctors to kind of figure out what kind of foods they should be eating? Does it depend on the ailment? How does that work? Yeah, so clients really come to us from all walks of life. We get prescribed by physicians, but clients can self-refer. We get case managers that refer. Really, folks can just access, visit our website, manapa.org. But really, when clients come to MANA, our intake specialists will onboard them. And often, clients may come to us because they may have a new diagnosis of cancer. Mm -hmm. But at intake, we find out that they have a history of high blood pressure, diabetes. So MANA makes sure that we'll cover all their ailments to make sure that, that we're providing the right diet that's taking care of all the conditions that they're battling um, to make sure that we can relieve that stress. And what we hear from clients over again, going back to what Dr. Rising was saying, is that, you know, I can't tell you when I was counseling as a dietitian how many times... I would sit down with someone who's had diabetes for 15 years and I would just ask, like, do you understand what diabetes is? Do you understand what's happening in your body? And so the gift that MANA provides is the education and then the actual meal, right? So the meal is an education tool in itself because people can learn what healthy eating looks like and what that definition of healthy means. Mm -hmm. And Kevin, tell me about the meals. Now, you receive these daily, weekly? How did that work? I get them once a week. I get the meals for all the whole week. Okay. And um, most of them are fantastic. Mm, which is important. It is. Right? Glad to hear that. <laughs> no, it is. It really is. Most of them are fantastic. So this was something that made things easier for you, for you to be able to eat for the condition that you have and to get healthier. And you lost weight as yes. an added benefit, right? Yes, I did. I, I lost 41 pounds in two months. Right. Wow. That's with great. the latest ailment. <laughs> now my kidneys are stage five, so okay. they're done. But um, you can still live on dialysis. It doesn't matter. Right, right. You still got to eat. Right. You know, it's just uh, on dialysis days, I don't feel like cooking. I don't feel like prepping, nothing. Mm -hmm. So it's so much easier. Just get that meal. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds incredibly convenient. And, of course, it works. So that's that's great to hear. 
Dr. Rising, I know you work with, like you said, a lot of diabetes patients. And, you know, just off the top of my head, when you were talking about how people don't understand what it means to eat healthy for their particular ailment, uh, a lot of people think when they think diabetes, oh, I have to stay away from sugar. And then that's it. But that's a misnomer. I guess it's one of the problems and uh, uh, one of the issues with uh, knowing how to eat for your particular ailment. Absolutely. I think it's complicated and can be overwhelming for people, right? I think of a friend who was diagnosed with diabetes in her 20s. And she said, I'm a highly educated individual and just got this huge stack of papers. And was like, where do I even start with this? And so figuring out actually incorporating all the advice into actionable meals every day, I think is really overwhelming and hard. And sometimes even there's conflicting or conceived as conflicting information, I think, when people get little snippets. Don't eat sugars, eat more of this, eat less of this. And like, how do those add together, I think, is hard for people when it's coming from many different sources. And so tying that all together for people and, and enacting it into a daily meal plan mm-hmm. is really important for people to kind of see how to do it on their own. Now, do you work with MANA directly with the Thomas Jefferson um, University Hospital? You both work together with MANA? I don't work together with MANA from the clinical side, although MANA certainly works with Jefferson to serve many of Jefferson's patients. Um, We have worked together from a research side for many years now. I have a long ongoing study funded by the NIH that's looking at the long-term impact of MANA as well as intensive nutrition education on outcomes for patients with diabetes. Mm-hmm. And so that trial has been underway for some years. And we have a new study that um, the MANA Foundation, in fact, is funding that we'll be starting in the next few months. Okay. Uh, Sue, that you said that doctors prescribe MANA for their patients and you serve the greater Philadelphia area. How many clients would you say you serve each year? Oh, gosh. So I think last year we served close to 6,000 clients, and we're doing, we just served our 22 millionth meal. So per every year, we're about 1.6 million meals. So it's a lot of meals going out of the kitchen. Uh, mm. We have a state of the art production facility. We have a team of dietitians and chefs, and, you know, dietitians are at one end of the table, and they care about the macro and the micronutrients, and the chefs care about it tasting good. And so, and then there's the volunteer component, which we really do hear from our clients over and over that. You know, the food is great, the love is better, and that they know that people give their time to make sure that they're getting the right nutrition. And then the other, you know, reality is that, you know, a lot of our clients, they may have children in the household. And so MANA will provide meals for all dependents because you don't want to show up to a mom who's battling, you know, diabetes or cancer and she doesn't have resources to take care of her child Mm. and she's going to share the food, right? So we wouldn't want her sharing her medication because we want her to, to win that fight. Um, so we make sure that all the dependents have meals as well. Right. So you've got this army of volunteers serving all of these meals each year, and you're doing it at no cost. No cost. Not how is, no cost. How, to the- how is that possible? How are you funded? So we are funded, you know, through the generous support of individuals, philanthropic, right, corporate sponsors. Um, we do work with all the Medicaid, Southeastern Medicaid providers who mm-hmm. are, you know, starting to, you know, see the benefit of making sure that folks get the right nutrition and studies are showing that if you provide the right nutrition, not only are people's health outcomes better, but the reduction in healthcare costs is significant. So it's a win-win intervention. And so hopefully someday, you know, and that's through the work that Dr. Rising is doing, that we're really hopeful that with data and, you know, results, we can move towards this being a mandated covered benefit for everybody. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Uh, Dr. Rising, um, how important would you say it is to track patients with serious ailments after being released um, from the hospital to ensure, you know, they're following the proper nutrition that they should be? I think tracking and following up on patients is critical for the nutrition as well as their other health needs. 
Um, certainly, when thinking about filling health needs, I think being able to close the loop on those referral processes and have enough attention to make sure not only we provided patients with information or we started referrals to places that they're getting those resources is a really important part of the process and is something that my team has been working with um, with leadership at Jefferson to think about how can we continue to refine those processes across health-related social needs to think about we need to make sure people are getting to the right level of support and then also really make sure that they are actually getting that support. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Let's talk about the cost of care uh, and how uh, programs like MANA can make an impact. Cost of care for diabetes uh, in the United States over $325 billion with a B, um, which is a lot. And this can be alleviated with medically tailored meals, yes? That is the idea and the thought. Um, that trial that I referenced earlier that we have had underway for the past uh, few years is doing a formal cost-effectiveness analysis. Much of my goal with the work that we're doing is to generate better evidence for decision makers, policymakers, insurers about the impact of these interventions on both health outcomes and on cost. Mm-hmm. With that being the idea that if we can get people to better states of health with food, though the food interventions may sound a lot to someone, they are certainly way less than many of the medications and certainly way less than managing complications that arise for patients. Yeah. We often say that, you know, if you think about us as food, people may be like, although I would argue even as food, we're not expensive, but people may think it's expensive. But if you think about it as treatment, which is what we are, right? We are providing a prescribed diet. We are cheaper than the cost of aspirin, right? So it really is thinking about that. And there's so much studies. I mean, the research that Manna published in 2013 showed uh, savings of 13000 per member per month. That's a lot of money, right? There was a research article published last October in JAMA that showed if everyone who needed a medically tailored meal had access to that, the projected savings was $13 billion a year. Wow. After the cost of the intervention, you know, again, with more data and more research, we will continue to move in that direction. I know a lot of patients, you know, uh, especially with serious ailments, don't like to take a lot of medication. Is this another way for them to kind of be able to get off of the medication that they're on by, you know, having these meals that are tailored to them for their ailment? I certainly think so. Um, I did some work years ago with patients with diabetes thinking about what are your primary goals around kind of thinking about your diabetes management in terms of life goals, right? And some people may say, I'm never going to change my diet. I want to eat whatever I'm going to eat, right? And we may need to get much more aggressive sooner on their medications and say, okay, we're going to incorporate that, right? And we're going to understand that because everyone's life preferences are important to incorporate. Um, But for those people who want to minimize their medications um, and, you know, kind of optimize their control. I certainly think that really getting on top of their nutrition, getting support from MANA, hopefully learning from MANA how to do it on their own, right? We do want to hope that people down the line develop more self-efficacy to manage their own uh, nutrition needs at home. That certainly their medication needs we should see going down. And that's, again, where we need policy change, right? Because imagine if right now, right, when we're working with our insurers, they only cover the intervention for a short window. And yet they'll share with us case studies, right, where people that have been on insulin are able to come off insulin and be controlled through an oral hypoglycemic agent, right, Mm -hmm. which is cheaper. 
and the medically tailored meal. We certainly are not saying that we are at a replacement, right, for your medication, but we can help, right? We can yeah. reduce medication or have you go on a, a more affordable, but they will pay for insulin forever, right? But they'll only pay for the medically tailored meal for four to 12 weeks. And so imagine if Kevin, you know, was like, 12 weeks, sorry, you're done. What would happen then? And so that's really where, where we need that policy change. Got it. Kevin, are you still uh, receiving meals from MANA? Yes, I am. Okay. And how long have you been receiving meals? On and off for seven years. Seven years. With different ailments. Got it. What if you weren't paired with MANA and weren't able to have access to these meals specifically tailored to you? Well, quite truthfully, I'd be at a loss. I do rely on it. I depend on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, not not to say that I can't cook, not that I don't say that I don't know how to cook, I placed first place in Master Chef in Philly. Oh wow! So I know how to cook, but the thing is, being able to. Yeah. Now these meals have helped me shed weight, and now I'm a little more active, which helps me shed more weight. But apparently, when your kidneys shut down, your body goes into starvation mode, and you can't lose weight. So now, with the mana meals in combination with exercise, I'm losing weight. So I feel healthier. Good, good. That's great. Food tasting good is important for you to be able to eat. I mean, if you're going to have something and you're, you know, you're on a specific diet, you can't eat this, and everybody thinks bland, 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 there's nothing in this. But if you make it taste good, you'll continue with it. And exactly. you'll con- Right, and you'll get the right nutrition. Now, I understand that MANA has um, about 11 different diets in the program. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, so we certainly have a diet that's appropriate for diabetes. We have heart healthy. We have a renal diet for kidney. Um, we have bland diet for GI issues. Um, it really is a combination, and that's really what makes, I think, MANA unique is that we really can layer the diet so that you know, and someone who maybe recently had a stroke needs a, a mechanical soft diet or a puree diet. So we can do texture changes as well and just really make sure that we're setting the client up for success. Taking a look at the broader picture, um, and everybody can chime in on this one, I'm wondering where the United States is compared with other countries when it comes to food as medicine. Are we behind just kind of catching up? I think we have some catching up to do. <laughs> you know, I do. I think if you look at other studies in other countries, that it really is recognized as an important part of the intervention and, and access. So I think we have some catching up to do. And what would you say is the biggest problem with the American diet in general? I know we, we live these fast lives and everything has to be ready quick and we have a million things to do and we have short attention spans um, and we're not really paying that much attention to our nutrition. Well, what's the biggest problem, would you say? Supersized. Supersized. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants that's the most it, you can that's get. That's when it started. Back in the day, supersized meals. You know, also, I think, you know, when I was going to school, I, I worked for many, many years in a supermarket. And I think advertising, right? I think what's accessible, what's available, what's easy tends to be not as nutritious. So I think that, you know, that's a big problem as well. Yeah. And that's pushed, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially with their kids. What about the kids? Uh, you know, I have a 17 and an 11-year-old. They're girls, and they still are carb-crazy kids. Carbs, carbs, carbs all day long. Carbs, sugar, that's all they want. Um, it's important for them uh, to understand the basics of nutrition so that they can kind of carry that out through adulthood, too. Yes? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I think schools and school lunch programs, that's mm. an important intervention. And activity, right? Physical activity is so important. Uh, you know, I think movement for kids is really critical. And then I think certainly at least a school making sure they're getting healthy food. Yeah. And Dr. Rising, I understand that there's a new venture between MANA and Jefferson Health. What's going on there? Yeah, so we're really excited about this work that's just getting started. Um, thankfully to the MANA Institute that's been able to fund us for this. So as we've talked about, MANA is perfect for a whole set of patients, right? The clients who really need intensive intervention, lots of education, also potentially need support because they can't cook. They're maybe physically disabled. They're too sick to cook. They don't have working equipment. They may have a whole bunch of different scenarios. We also acknowledge that many people have nutrition needs that um, don't need something as intensive as MANA, but are really important needs. Maybe they have problems affording their food, right? But if they could actually get help with getting their groceries, they love to cook. They're able to cook, right? They can do that at home. They've got their own preferences. They don't have the transportation to get to stores. So if food could be delivered to their home, they can then cook it. So there's all sorts of different needs and interventions. And so my team has been working on developing a kind of a screening tool to help with getting people to the right level of nutrition services. And with this funding, we will be refining that tool and then doing a trial of using that tool with patients who are hospitalized at Jefferson to get them referred to levels of care and to follow them over time to see how well those services are really meeting those needs when people are ready to transition off those services to look at whether that tool can help us with kind of also optimizing that transition to the next level of care that they need. I usually do this right at the top uh, when I first uh, start talking to someone about their organization. I want to go back to the founding of MANA back in 1990. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what was going on at the time where there was a need or there there was a need seen for an organization like MANA? Sure. So we were founded by our seven founding members who really saw a need in the HIV AIDS community. People Mm -hmm. were dying and people were afraid, right? And they were dying alone. And so our seven founding members just started getting food, you know, donated by restaurants and showing up and you know, eventually we grew and we got a, a kitchen in the basement of, of the First Presbyterian Church. And then, you know, I would say really in 1999, there was a big shift, right, is that people with HIV and AIDS, thankfully, were living um, and living longer, but not living without consequences, and side effects. And so that's when we really say we shifted from helping people die to helping people live. And that's when the science was born at Mana. And we, you know, shifted to making sure people were getting good nutrition, proper nutrition, moving from comfort to treatment. Okay. And you did mention um, uh, legislation. I'm wondering, are we going to see any movement soon uh, from lawmakers uh, in, in light of uh, what we've been hearing as far as the the uh, evidence that this is something that really works, that helps uh, bring down the costs and, you know, improve patient outcomes? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot happening. Certainly the state of Pennsylvania, they introduced um, legislation around a waiver to cover um, medically tailored meals and other, you know, food programs. So, that's in the works, right? It'll take some time to get that all figured out, but I think there's a lot of momentum and a lot of movement. Okay. And Dr. Rising, would you suggest that more hospitals, more doctors really zero in on nutrition uh, when it comes to their patients and actually prescribing food as medicine? Absolutely. There's a lot of need for that. That is certainly where Jefferson Health is going with increased focus, not only for screening people for their health-related social needs, but for figuring out How do we make those referrals happen? And how do we make those referrals also happen at the right level for everybody, from the individuals with one or more chronic conditions who really need the level of intervention of manna and meals delivered to their house, to the people who maybe need prescription groceries or food boxes or food vouchers, right? That there's all different levels of support and figuring out 
how we can optimize moving people across those levels of support, graduating them down from MANA when they're done and transitioning them maybe into still some support if they still have issues with food insecurity in the house and transitioning people up a level of support when a new condition kicks in and they need some more help. And there's a lot of room for us to still grow in that area, but I think there's a lot of attention from health systems to figure out how we can do this better. Okay. Sue, how can we learn more about MANA? I would say visit manapa.org. Um, come in, come volunteer. Um, there's all ways to get involved through donating, volunteering, and, and participating in the events we have throughout the year. All right. Sue Doherty, Dr. Kristen Rising, and Kevin Kilmartin, thank you all so much for joining us on Bridging Philly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. 2023 ushered in the 50th anniversary of hip hop. It was a big year and celebrations were held all around the world. Charity Howard sat down with the Philadelphia Inquirer's Elizabeth Wellington to close out this big year, discussing Philly's contributions to the genre on the latest Shara in the City. All right, Bridging Philly, we have a special guest today. Will you please introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Elizabeth Wellington. I'm a longtime fashion writer and cultural critic at the Philadelphia Inquirer. So we're celebrating, of course, hip hop's golden anniversary, the big five-o, but so are you. Yeah, me too. Me and hip hop <laughs> are the same age. <laughs> 1973 was a hell of a year. Now, Elizabeth, you've done some really beautiful work for the Inky. Let's talk about the Inquirer and your 50th anniversary edition. Well, you know, it was really important for me that we write about um, hip hop covering 50 years because I feel that a lot of our newspaper readers are hip hop heads. Like they're a part of hip hop culture. Like we're all sort of hip hop is midlife now. Right. Some hip hop people are grandparents. Like we're part of the culture. We're making change. Um, we are in decision making seats. You know, Jay-Z is 50 plus and he basically was going to bring like the biggest concert here. So it was my way of kind of paying homage to my generation, you know, my, my friends, who I am. And it's acknowledging that um, because we were really at the forefront of the culture. And if it wasn't for the work that early artists did and not just, of course, hip hop artists, but also the people that listen to the music, the people who grew up to the music, the people who dance to the music, the people who make fashion lines because of hip hop, the people who, you know, are now CEOs in places that we don't even know of. We've all been influenced by um, and love hip hop. So it's kind of my homage, not just to the actual hip hop itself, but to all of us who were integral in the creation and birth and who really just love the culture. Now, as many know, hip-hop was born on the streets of New York, August 11th, 1973, right? Names like DJ Cool Herc and the brother and sister team Cindy and Clive Campbell. Now, rewind, 18-year-old Cindy Campbell and her brother Clive throw a party in the Bronx in their apartment complex. Only uh, we've got turntables and a microphone. That is it. Now, this gave birth to the rhythm and the rhyme that, of course, Philadelphia has taken on as our own. So let's talk about the contributions from Philly. Let's go all the way back. People like Lady B. Well, yeah, Lady B, she was the first woman to record a record um, on wax in the whole world, in the whole country. She was the first woman to record a solo rap artist. And from there, she took a job at WHAT where she worked with Mary Mason and she started discovering hip hop artists. So from there, she really is responsible for so many of Philly's first. 
from DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, who were the first rap act to win a Grammy. Schooly D, who was the Schooly first D. gangster rap artist. Yes. So he's pretty well known. Um, random hip hop fact. The first record to be banned from radio was by this guy named MC Breeze. Yeah. Let's he talk had about that. song called Discombobulator Boobulator. So, I mean, Philly is has many firsts from the good and the bad. And Philadelphia, from the beginning of its inception, has been one of the first to do all the things. Now, when we talk about women and hip hop, we carry this tradition well. Let's talk about some more. Other than Lady B, let's talk about Shorty Nomas. She doesn't get the speed that she deserves to get. Shorty Nomas did, uh, nailed it in the late 90s. She was kind of run out when she had a baby, <laughs> but she just came back with a new hit. And then we think about uh, like how the roots and how black thought, how they really brought women in to the fold. Well, the roots are really interesting because they were considered like the first hip hop band. And from the work that they did, you have artists like Bahamadia, who was down in an old city at the time. Um, you know, Eve, she's one of hip hop's um main women to come out. I always think of Eve in like that second wave. You have artists like Eve at Money. She was one of the first um, battle rappers, actually, and she responded to LL Cool J's Dear Yvette, which was his sort of misogynist to talk about a promiscuous girl. So she kind of came out in the vein of Roxanne Shante, who, by the way, also recorded Roxanne's Revenge here in Philadelphia, too. So Philly was sort of a training ground and a honing ground for a lot of artists because it was so close to New York that we were the first city where artists really had to sort of break their records, break their songs. It was a big deal. Our studios were attracting big names, huge names that I think now today still are kicking. I mean, we've got uh, Beanie Siegel, uh, Meek Mill. I mean, like, uh, who else can we talk about? And some DJs. We got to we got to hit the DJs. So we've got DJ, of course, King Brit. We've got Cash Money. Talk about some others who have like really done some good damage, good trouble. Well, one of the first DJs I really didn't get a chance to talk about in the story much was DJ Tap Money, and he was the DJ for Steady B and Cool C. Cool C is well known for the song Glamorous Life, and Steady B had a lot of songs too. One of the things that was uh, mentioned a lot was turntablism. And that was like a new word for me because I was like, I know DJs, but turntablism? Yeah. And Two it's really turntables an art. and a microphone. Right. It's really an art and a science. So you have people like um, Cash Money and DJ Jazzy Jeff who went to New York and won major DJ contests, which got them record deals because they created new scratches like the Pee Wee Herman scratch and the Transformer scratch, all these different scratches and beats that we still use in here today. We still use. I just uh, spoke with Cash Money and Cash Money said, you know what? I work those tables like other people may play the trumpet or the saxophone or the piano. This is my instrument. This is my instrument of choice. And each and every day I learn something new and I leave something for posterity. So let's talk about the future, the future of hip hop. How do you see it? Is it bright? Well, I mean, I think hip hop is the foundation for a lot of our music, but I think the future is morphed. It's, it's different. Hip-hop is the base. It's kind of like now we look at rock and roll. It's the foundation. So what's coming out now is like hip-hop evolved. And because we respect this evolution, it's always going to change. It's going to be different. You know, the hip-hop of the late 80s and the early 90s that we call the golden age of hip-hop isn't the same hip-hop. It's not even the same as Meek Mill, right? It's not even the same as this guy named D. Sturdy, who's really a new rapper here or... 
um, Deform Sloan, who's a new rapper. Um, because I think now, talking about what Cash Money talked about, you know, the DJ, the turntable was the actual instrument and the music. Now, you know, the music is remixes different uses of synthesizers and different music where you it's not like where the beatbox was the music so i think with that being said it's shifted and changed so as long as we're able to embrace the evolution of hip-hop and what hip-hop is becoming the future is always bright but we can't look to hip-hop to be what it was when we were kids because it's just not that anymore now would you say it's still a call to the culture because i think at this point it's expanded it's gone around the world but Back in the day, it was a call to black and brown people. It was a call to urban living. It was a call to the heart of what a struggle was. And you found do with the struggle and you found the beauty in it. Do you say that's still alive and well? Um, I think parts of hip hop will always be a call to the culture. We have local artists here like Chemist who really rap from the heart, right? He really comes from a place where he's trying to get people to understand what it is to be a black man in 2023, 2024, you know, in the world that we live in now. But in some ways, just like all kind of music, some of it is sort of commercialized. Mm -hmm. um, does that mean it's not hip hop? No. Does that mean um, its roots are different? No. But does that mean it's a call to the culture? That depends on what you define what the culture is. And it draws us right back to evolution. Maybe this is just the nature of the beast. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining us at Bridging Philly. Thank you for having me. It was hey. fun. Thank you for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Also, we're looking for the 2024 class of Game Changers. Nominations are being accepted right now. If you know a person or an organization doing positive work to uplift communities of color, go to kywnewsradio.com slash gamechangers and nominate them today. Winners will be featured on KYW and will be awarded at a special ceremony during Black History Month. For Sharaday Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. Be well.